Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Weigenbaum. This is episode number 98. What should I do to prioritize my health? This actually accompanies an article written by Dr. Austin Brocky with a similar title that's linked in the description below. And we're going to go deep into the weeds on all seven items on this list. But before we get into the podcast, it is Memorial Day today if you're listening to it live if you're listening to this in the future just ignore the next like 20 seconds but we are running a memorial day sale over at the barbell medicine website uh you can go to barbellmedicine.com check out all the sales we got 30 percent off templates 10 dollars off supplements huge sale on all the apparel um so if you want to get some new barbell medicine gear or supplements or templates or what have you go to the website check it out and as always thanks again for listening let's get into the podcast uh, we had been batting around this idea of coming up with a more centralized, clear sort of set of recommendations about like what we're trying to do with respect to influencing the the, the general public and to improve their health and kind of like an itemized list. Like here are the things that we strongly recommend. So you came up with seven priorities, seven sort of points um, you want to take us through these things? Sure. Uh, and this, this started, I, I wrote a, a, actually this started from an Instagram caption, a post that I wrote, I think it was maybe last summer or, um, a few months back at least. And then, um, I had, I'd been seeing, you know, a lot of the questions we were getting and definitely agree that, you know, we're at a stage where needing to give people kind of a more centralized intro or on-ramp or whatever kind of, uh, descriptor you want to use so that when people show up on the website, they're not just like thrown into like a 40 page article with like a hundred references. Um, but rather we can direct them like start here. And then each, each of these individual topics, uh, then gets flushed out at length elsewhere. So like, you know, the training component, we have a ton of stuff on training the nutrition stuff, et cetera. Um, but here's where you can get like a checklist. I mean, and, and, and there's obviously just so, so, so much information, health related information, medical information, people giving you their, their one weird tricks or their biohacks or this supplement or this new compound you need to be, you know, uh, uh, worried about or, whatever. And, and people only have so much attention and energy and resources to be able to dedicate towards their health. We don't actually want people to be, you know, I guess what would the equivalent just be like a, like orthorexia towards their own, their own health and like trying to put every single piece of advice that comes out in the world into practice is, um, it's, it's a great way to ruin your life, I suppose. <laughs> it'd be, a, it'd be some form of the now antiquated term, like hypochondriac. Like it's not that you, you're yeah. worrying that you have all these diseases, but it's like you're, you have this excessive obsession over how to quote unquote optimize, which right. if you've been around barbell medicine for any period of time, you know, that we despise that phrase particularly yes. when it comes to like health outcomes, we need to optimize. It's like, mm, or that seems or programming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, though we used to use it though, to be fair. Yeah. So like, just yeah. if, if you, if you haven't been around for a long, long time, like optimal programming was an idea that we kind of were batting around. Like, you know, why would we prefer this over this? It's like, Oh, well it's more optimal. And it's like, ah, eh, we should probably, you know, we've just That's grown and gotten away thing. from that. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So, and you can, you can't know it prospectively, only retrospectively. Yeah. And even then, like how you employ that going forward, you know, you're just take, it's an educated guess. All right. Anyway. So, so we have these seven things. 
Let's start off with number one. So the first one, the first one was to uh, recommend that people engage in regular physical activity, meeting or exceeding current physical activity guidelines. We've talked about those a bit before. We cited them in our beginner prescription uh, piece as far as what they are. And just you want to review them just for the sake of review for people? Sure. So a little historical background here. The original physical activity guidelines for Americans came out in 1996, right? And at that point, they were basically recommending that all individuals engaged in 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity per week. Uh, At that point, the stipulation was you had to do uh, all of that activity in one bout, meaning that you couldn't break it up into like five minute chunks or 10 minute chunks or whatever. It was just at least 20 to 30 minutes of activity per day. That morphed, got changed and updated in 2008, uh, where the recommendations were uh, then amended to include twice weekly resistance training, as well as the uh, potential to, instead of doing this moderate intensity aerobic activity you could do instead of that vigorous intensity aerobic activity. And then the amount of time that you needed to spend doing this uh, was cut in half. So 75 to 150 minutes. So now the entire physical activity recommendations of 2008 included twice weekly resistance training and uh, either 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity aerobic activity. Uh, that was subsequently updated in 2018 with the major amendment be, major amendments being a much larger body of research to suggest why these are important and how they can improve health outcomes. So reducing risk of cardiovascular disease, certain cancers, uh, improving obesity outcomes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. And now they said instead of uh, accumulating this these uh, aerobic activity uh, goals in Ten uh, minute bouts, which is what the uh, what they came up with in two thousand eight, you could do it as in short uh, as short as five minute bouts. So effectively, if you had somebody who was really resistant to the idea of exercising or didn't have the availability to exercise for a long period of time consecutively, or was unable to just you know because they got out of breath or they were tired or something like that, uh, now they could accumulate. Uh, that's physical activity throughout the day in as short as five minute bouts. So you could effectively have somebody every hour go for a five minute walk, you know, or five minute whatever to uh, sort of meet these physical activity guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. And so physical and and activity, you know, when you look at WHO uh, risk factors for death, um, it's the fourth, fourth risk factor behind high blood pressure, tobacco use, high blood sugar, then physical inactivity, and the last one's obesity are the top five risk factors for, for death. And so even though this is the fourth um, on that ranking, um, I chose to put it first as my like top one for, for several reasons. I think one, because it has a, a very high potential to influence all the others uh, to improve all those other risk factors for mortality. Uh, and additionally, um, you know, frailty, sarcopenia, things like that are, are huge problems from our perspective. And so this is one that, you know, all those other things we can manage through, say through nutritional means or with uh, medication and things like that as well. Um, this is one where we can't really influence people's physical development a ton through, through those means. Um, and, and so, you know, given the number of people that I see get, get weak, frail, end up institutionalized, sent to nursing homes, things like that. It's like, even if you were to develop one of those other chronic diseases or a complication thereof, the more trained you are when you come down with it or when you experience it, you're still going to end up with better quality of life and more independence, uh, on, on the other side of it in general. Um, and so, you know, we know we have, again, gr- just overwhelming body of evidence um, to support 
these kind of guidelines and why people should be meeting slash exceeding them. They get better outcomes uh, by meeting both, you know, uh, even in fact, just a paper that just came out like I think within the past couple of days um, about obesity outcomes with people who meet neither guideline, just the strength training gu guideline, just the aerobic gu guideline or both. And you just see this like, you know, uh, incremental effect from none to one or the other to both. Uh, you get better and better uh, results. So that's why this one took the top spot and why we have our beginner prescription to get people started. We have lots of other introductory material on this. We talk a ton about behavior change. We offer coaching, all kinds of other stuff to get people going on this path. Yeah, it's just really important. And and not a lot of people are meeting these guidelines. So so I think you covered a little bit of the, the um, you know, epidemiology, as it were, about <laughs> how many, what percentage of people are actually meeting these guidelines. But it's funny, if you ask people straight up, hey, how many uh, how often are you engaging in resistance training? How often are you engaging in aerobic training? The number of people who self-report that they're meeting both guidelines is right around 20% for Americans. But if you strap a fancy Fitbit to them and, and follow them just to like make sure they're doing what they say that they say they're doing, it's uh, less than 5%. So huge potential to, to really improve health outcomes, reduce healthcare spending, improve quality of life, all sorts of things by pulling this lever. And that's probably, yeah, well, again, why it takes that top, that top spot. Uh, just as an aside, because I think, you know, some people, particularly if we have, you know, some experienced clinicians listening, they're like, well, guidelines are great, but, you know, we should, where there's additional evidence, um, that maybe contradicts or expands upon the guidelines, we should use those in addition to clinical experience. And so I, I'm, I, I don't want to say that we rely solely on the guidelines here, but my, my addition would be that I think that there's a substantial amount of evidence that there's a dose-dependent relationship between the amount of exercise that people are getting, amount of physical activity that people are getting, and the potential to improve their health outcomes. So my addition to the guidelines would be that we need to encourage people to exceed these minimums over time to ex be more physically active. And so it's not just that hitting the minimums are enough. That's just the kind of first goal that we're trying to get people to. We would want people to exceed these guidelines. Minimums. Yeah. Particularly if you meet the minimum and you still are dealing with a health issue that is potentially responsive to it. Like you meet the minimum and, sure. and you know, you still have room to improve your blood sugar, your blood pressure, your waist circumference, et cetera. Then that there might be a, a, a stronger case to be made for up in the dose a little bit, as they say. Just, yeah, just do more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think that would be, you know, if they decide to, call barbell medicine when they're updating these things in 2028 or wherever, what should we add? Uh, I think we should make it clear that um, we should be trying to increase the, the total amount of exercise volume, physical activity volume, because again, there's a substantial amount of research there. And in addition, I think there should be actual like sample training programs within the guidelines Yeah, because it's like, Okay, thanks for the guidelines. How does this actually look? How does this actually what know, do? How do we flesh this out? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Guidelines. <laughs> what do? <laughs> so yeah, it, uh, and then if you read the when you read this article by Dr. Baraki, you'll get linked to a couple other different articles where we talk about why this is you know what physicians actually know about this right now and why that's a problem in and of itself. So that kind of would make sense um, as to why you would actually want 
practical recommendations. Like here's what you should be recommending your patients to do specifically. So that's number one. Number two, maintain a healthy body weight and body composition. Well, why'd you put this, this in here? Yeah. So this one obviously is uh, for many people much easier said than done, but overweight and obesity uh, as well as sarcopenia on the other side are uh, huge problems. In fact, CDC just published some data yesterday uh, on the increasing prevalence of obesity in the United States. Um, now we're up to 42%, I think, uh, from the prior two-year period from 2015 to 2016, we're at 39%, so a 3% increase from 15-16 to 17-18. So things are not going in the right direction. Uh, worldwide, obesity's like tripled since the 70s. And um, yeah, so things, it's problematic. And carrying excess body fat, as many know, and as we talk about at length in our seminars, uh, has tons of potential health implications, uh, consequences of metabolic syndrome, and uh, many, many, many others that uh, we don't need to go into great detail on here. Um, and the, the bigger problem is that uh, we're having a difficult time making a significant impact on it. And this is in the setting of there being like more information than there has ever been. Um, I got a DM about this and people are like, you know, why do you think it's going up? There's so much good information out there. I'm like, because this is complicated. Uh, it's more, you know, it, we can we can take a reductionist view of things down to the calorie level, which, you know, we recognize the, the energy imbalance is uh, the kind of the, the uh, what we call the final common pathway here, the, the root of the issue. But the things that drive that energy imbalance are just so, so, so complex and interacting and different variable from individual to individual, from culture to culture, country to country, um, that there's not going to be a single simple like biohack or, or like supplement or something that you can take to fix this problem on a broad level. Uh, and so we recognize the complexity of it. And we talk a lot about biopsychosocial approaches to things, environmental contextual factors that all need to be addressed, um, in it, but there's no getting around that this is, you know, a, a pandemic really of, of obesity or like we're approaching that level of, of, uh, of it as far as being a problem in the world. Uh, and so, you know, we, we lay out some guidelines here consistent with our prior advice on the matter as far as how to screen and diagnose uh, obesity, as far as your uh, people who are at increased health risk as a result of carrying too much body fat and do that via a waist circumference. And you created some resources to provide people with uh, education as far as how to do that. I have a lot of people who just tell me their pant size, which is not adequate. It's not the same thing as a proper waist uh, circumference measurement um, and how to interpret these measurements even across different ethnicities as there's some variability there. I guess the idea is like people are looking for the smoking gun with respect to why this is a problem and, and why can't we just tell people, you know, hey, if, if you know, carrying excess adipose tissue is bad, uh, so, so don't do it. Yeah. Well, they, yeah, that, that's not, that doesn't work any more than telling somebody who has a substance abuse issue to just stop doing that because yeah. it, it's harmful for them there. Are, and this isn't to say that um, eating is necessarily an addictive behavior or, or anything like that, but it, it's just trying to uh, uh, suggest that this is more complex. There are a lot of different things in play here and it's not just an education thing. You can't just tell somebody like here are all the potential health problems that are associated with carrying too much body fat. Um, it just doesn't work like that. And actually, I don't know if you saw this, the uh, AACE, the American Academy of Clinical Endocrinologists just came out with a recommendation to change the nomenclature. Um, they had been uh, suggesting this for a while, but instead of saying obesity-related diseases, they want to call it adipose-related 
adiposity related uh, chronic disease. So they're trying to get away from this obesity stigma, you know, calling yeah. people with higher BMIs, obese individuals, for example, that they can create a stigma that ultimately creates a barrier to care. So um, in any event, that's a tangent, but you know, somebody who's listening here might be thinking, nope, this is simple. These doctors got it wrong. They just want to complicate things so they can profit from, you know, big, <laughs> big something. I don't even know. Big weight yeah. loss, like whatever. <laughs> um, and so they say, it's just, I heard that it's just carbohydrates, for example. Well, we've actually consumed less sugar uh, per capita uh, since the year 2001. It's gone down literally almost every year. Um, but our obesity rates climbing astronomically. And that's because the main foods that Americans in particular overeat on are not like sugary foods. It's pizza and hamburgers and French fries and potato chips. So while there are carbohydrates in those foods, it's the combination of carbohydrates and fat that are particularly high, you know, highly dense energy sources, a lot of calories and, and very palatable, Lots of very tasty. Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. And the anticipation of, you know, Ooh, I'm going to get this pizza. Like, uh, so, so people again are saying, just, you know, stop eating carbohydrates, get off the carbs. You know, it's the same type of advice as telling people just to cut calories. So one, not only does it not work, but two, it's not really an accurate, uh, uh, representation of the actual the actual problem uh, in the case of getting you know cutting carbohydrates it actually is you know that's what you'd want to do with calories but the actual advice needs to be uh, a little bit more tailored to the individual yeah so i just kind of wanted to address the some of these reductionist ideas where people are like it's just this it's like it's probably not just that it's uh, almost essentially I, never just that <laughs> it's yes it's li yes almost never in fact i mean e even if you wanted to get as simple as like a monogenic cause of obesity like somebody has a single genetic you know mutation that predisposes to obesity there's still like humans in a world in a society as they say uh who who are going to be interacting with this environment and have you know a lot of the same uh, uh environmental factors and things like that that'll influence their ultimate manifestation of that uh you know single single factor genetic change you know yeah that's actually i wrote about that in our last research review the fto gene is like quote unquote the obesity gene um, and so, for example, individuals with that gene uh, have a almost triple the risk, almost triple the risk of somebody without one copy of the, that gene to um, have a BMI greater than 35 in adulthood. Uh, that being said, exercise limits the effect of that gene. Yeah. And then also uh, living in a higher socioeconomic status household <laughs> tends yeah, to uh, right. be protective. Um, and so I know, again, what people are thinking when we talk about socioeconomic status, they're like, oh, here comes the politics stuff. But I just want you to think about like the things that people of higher socioeconomic status have access to. They have access to places to exercise, right? Like parks, gyms, other safe places that they can go. They don't live on a physical activity island. Uh, also with food choices, they don't live in food deserts where there's literally no, uh, you know, potentially healthy foods to eat. They also have time to exercise and, you know, uh, comparatively. So there's a lot of stuff at play here. Um, in addition to um, having a, a, some higher education uh, yeah. than individuals of lower socioeconomic status in, in general. But yeah, so it's complicated. That's it's, the point. It's very complicated. The point if, is complicated. If we did want yeah. to simplify things down as much as possible as far as a dietary pattern, because that's what we, you know, are 
caring about promoting healthful dietary patterns, the, the, the components of it that we kind of care about is the total energy intake. Obviously, that has a lot to do with the obesity piece, the dietary protein piece we are concerned with, specifically as far as uh, lean body mass, sarcopenia risk. And we've given out common, you know, kind of protein guidelines, aiming for about 1.6 grams per kilo uh, uh, body weight per day for healthy individuals around 0.7 grams per pound is perfectly reasonable. And that can come from any combination of animal or plant sources, not a big deal. Uh, if you're meeting that threshold, that's all good. Uh, consuming sufficient dietary fiber, uh, from ideally from food sources, we try to recommend people get around 30, 35 grams a day, uh, for healthy individual or for just about everybody who can, who can tolerate it. And then, um, finally the, the rest of the energy intake piece coming from carbohydrate and fat is really, it's nice because it's up to personal preference to an extent. If people prefer, you know, high fat, low carb or high carb, low fat, either way can be done in a healthful way, or in other words, without adverse health consequences, if you're meeting these other criteria. And finally, if the uh, intake of dietary fat is kind of biased towards unsaturated sources due to reasons that we discussed at length in our uh, podcasts with uh, with uh, Alan Flanagan and our article on meat intake and, and stuff like that. It's a pretty large uh, body of evidence for for these recommendations. Um, and and uh, Alan, that has, uh, with his guys over at Sigma, they've put out some good resources on this as well. So calories, protein, fiber, carbs and fat preference, except for the, the um, animal-based saturated fat, saturated uh, fat. Pref uh, things yeah. to bias towards unsaturated sources like from fish, plants, things like that. Yep, which should, which should color the uh, audience's questions about, well, what about this particular nutrient or food? Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's the dietary pattern. What about overall. this particular supplement? Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. What about this particular micro? Just stop. No, just stop. So if it's not, if we haven't kind of addressed that as this one of these things with like an overwhelming amount of evidence, I don't, we wouldn't recommend worried about it. Yeah, it's kind of the nice thing about these kind of guidelines, or at least as we're laying things out, is that like it gives people a ton of room for individualization if they can still meet those things. So if somebody likes to go low carb, cool. If you're meeting those other criteria, like getting your sufficient fiber and stuff like that. If you want to go ketogenic diet, if your fat distribution is set up in the way that we described, cool, go for it. If you want to do intermittent fasting yep. and you can adhere better to that. But on the other hand, if doing one of those kind of dietary approaches violates one of the above principles. So if it ends up resulting in you consuming, say, far too many calories or far too little protein or little to no fiber, if you're like a carnivore or something like that, or the other fat, uh, you know, carb fat stuff is, is all off, then we would say, hey, maybe your priorities are not necessarily in the right place. Um, so meeting those should be first. And then however you otherwise want to set it up, go for it, do it however you want. That's all good by us. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to eat a health promoting diet. Yep. Which is good. We don't, yep. that means we have less rules. Yes. All right. Number three, get sufficient durations of high quality sleep, which this feels like a little, like you're telling people to do something you don't do. <laughs> I actually would not agree with that. There have been, so obviously there have been periods of time in my life where things, you know, there were factors outside of my control and maybe I was doing, you know, the long, you know, ICU calls or whatever. And I maybe wasn't able to get ideal sleep at that time, but those were, you know, fairly limited bouts. So, you know, I might be on that rotation for a few weeks or a month or something like that. But in general, um, I actually tend to get, you know, fairly regularly uh, about, you know, somewhere between seven uh, and eight hours asleep, particularly now that I'm not in residency anymore. It's not really a, a huge uh, issue for me. Um, 
And so uh, in addition, due to some of the concerns over sleep previously, I actually had a sleep study done as, as, uh, as we've discussed before and have sleep apnea and use a CPAP at night to optimize my optimize. There you go to imp- improve my, improve my quality of sleep, um, from, from that standpoint as well. So it's definitely a, a big priority because, um, you know, for, for chronic sleep restriction, um, it has tons of, of, of consequences. There's lots of health issues attributed to or associated with, uh, with poor sleep, uh, quality or decreased, uh, insufficient sleep quantity with respect to, you know, cognitive function, mental health, cardiometabolic health, um, all kinds of other areas that, you know, we, we get, questions, consults, uh, uh, messages all the time with people who are complaining about, you know, uh, fatigue and they're like worried if they're, if a particular hormone is off or if they're, you know, uh, something up with their training or if they need to like take this supplement or whatever. And then we just ask them about their sleep and they're like, oh yeah, I just don't sleep well. And it's like, okay, well, that seems to be where our focus should be is on improving that. And so, you know, I, I'll lay out when the article comes out, people can review this section where we talk about, you know, big factors with respect to sleep hygiene, what we call kind of good sleep habits that people can, can get into. I give some other resources on the matter for people to learn more about this, um, as well as how we go about screening people for their risk of having uh, sleep related uh, breathing disorders, including obstructive sleep apnea, because um, it's pretty common, I think, probably under under recognized in practice. So I don't really have much to add here outside of like some practical frequently asked question additions. So yeah. should I train on nights that I don't sleep that well? Yep. Should I do anything differently if I haven't, if my sleep's going, you know, is going to be reduced for a period of time. I, I mean, I don't know that you can do anything differently to preempt, you know, to do, to, to fix that. Cause if you're, you're not sleeping enough, right. For a period of time, like, that's a problem, but hopefully it's short-lived and you still have to train. You still have to exercise. Uh, I just would hope that your training pr- uh, program has some uh, level of auto-regulation so that you can make sure that you're not necessarily uh, applying too much stimulus uh, for what you can tolerate. Yeah. By the same token, that you're not applying too low of a stimulus for what you can tolerate. So that's why auto-regulation comes in handy there. But, you know, all, uh, all the questions we get about like, you know, if I can't sleep, you know, eight hours per night, should I do four hours and then wake up and do work and then, you know, sleep four hours later on, like split sleeping. It's like, uh, I don't think we have good evidence to suggest that that's as restful or as uh, health promoting as sleeping the seven, eight hours per night due to like how many REM cycles you get to go through and the restorative sort of act, uh, actions that take place during deep sleep. I don't think that you should eat more on nights that you sleep less because that's going to like, you know, juice your recovery. Yeah. That's a worse idea because <laughs> you're worse off metabolically to handle it. Yeah. Yes. You're transiently in like this insulin resistant state, you know, from this decreased sleep. And so eating more is probably a bad, bad yeah. idea. Uh, it just, it, and that again, just suggests that the workout, that day's workouts performance somehow matters a ton, which it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Realistically, you're just trying to get the training effects anyway. So uh, it doesn't matter if your performance is down a little bit. It's just like, did you still get the fitness adaptations uh, or still add a little bit to your that fitness adaptation bucket that you're trying to get, whether that's more muscle mass, more strength, whatever. If so, you can do that you know, without having the best performance of your life in the gym. <laughs> uh, number four. Avoid smoking and the use slash abuse of other addictive substances. I see that you just 
had a very broad umbrella here. He just caught everything. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, this is probably something that we encounter less frequently in our particular like niche of, of uh, you know, the, the lifting world or the, the fitness community. Fewer people probably tend to, you know, smoke cigarettes regularly compared to in the general population. But I think we can't overlook how important of a factor lots of these things are. I mean, the CDC, according to the CDC, cigarette smoking is still you know, the leading cause of preventable, preventable disease and death in the United States, Uh, one out of every five deaths per year is attributable to, 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 to tobacco use. So that's a big problem. Yeah. 14% of adults still smoke in the United States. That's not an insignificant number, right? And similarly, alcohol, um, probably is, if I had to guess, is probably more of a problem in the fitness community compared to, compared to, uh, smoking just based on, uh, you know, our interactions with many of these, uh, these people. Um, and it's something that needs to be, uh, addressed as well as more of a problem than, cause it's much, much more socially kind of acceptable even these days. Um, and, and, you know, in my hospital work, I see all the end stage consequences of, uh, excessive alcohol use. Uh, and you know, chronic liver disease is probably one of the worst ways to <laughs> worst ways to go. Um, so definitely something that we would recommend working on. Provide some resources here, but I definitely recognize that similar to obesity, much easier said than done. Addiction is super difficult, and just reading an internet article is not even close to being enough to get people there. But a lot of these resources, in combination with maybe working with a professional, um, having some some professional guidance, as well as recognizing that sometimes it takes multiple attempts to successfully work through this. On average, it takes people, you know, I, I forget the specific number, it might be like seven attempts or something like that to successfully quit smoking. Um, so yeah, so it, it takes a lot of work, it's super difficult, lots of complex biopsychosocial factors at play. Um, but it needs to be put on this super high priority list just because of how many people it affects, um, and the burden of disease and death that it contributes to, uh, in the world. So up, up high on our list as well. You mean you can't just tell people to stop smoking? Yeah. Just don't do that. <laughs> just don't. Yeah. So again, similar to like, you know, just don't carry too much body fat. You can't just tell people to just stop smoking and expect that to have a high rate of success. Yeah. Uh, you know, it might work one out of every hundred times and, you yeah. know, just enough for you to keep doing the thing. <laughs> but people, will notice that not be that, uh, people notice that just about all of these uh, things that we're talking about are, have to do with behavior change. And that's the overlying, uh, you know, theme of what we, what we do and the theme of our seminar and stuff like that. And behavior change is super difficult. It's really complicated. Uh, Okay, moving on. Number five, seek medical care for a limited set of routinely monitored parameters. And I think this is probably one that I would have expected we would get inundated with questions on like, when should I see a doctor? Why? Because we're doctors. And so like, you know, if anything that we actually have direct training on, this would be it. But we, I get far more questions about what's better, sumo deadlift or conventional deadlift <laughs> right, than, yeah. than I get about when to seek routine medical care. So yeah. uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts on this? How often does the average adult need to actually go see a doctor? So not often, ideally, not often, um, l- much less often than people think. Uh, and so, you know, for people who are healthy and asymptomatic, that meaning that they don't have any symptoms or particular complaints that they want to have evaluated or potentially, you know, diagnosed, treated, et cetera, for healthy asymptomatic people, there are very few things that we can recommend on a broad scale with strong evidence to say that we should be, you know, screening for this issue. We should be looking for this issue to reduce your future risk of, you know, disease or death. Um, 
in general, searching for problems in people who feel fine and generally are fine with no complaints is a recipe for lots of problems, uh, particularly with uh, overdiagnosis, overtreatment, um, which itself has a whole number of harms. Uh, but uh, the places where we have really, really, really strong evidence for people to get their blood pressure screened, that's something that in general, outside of really extreme uh, levels does not tend to cause symptoms. So this is a situation where you may feel fine, but you may have chronically elevated uh, blood pressure that if diagnosed and treated uh, through lifestyle measures or medications or both um, can significantly reduce your risk of complications of chronically elevated blood pressure to include cardiovascular issues, stroke, you know, vision issues, heart issues, kidney issues, uh, um, all kinds of all kinds of problems uh, that can be we can reduce the risk of by getting people's blood pressure under control. So that's one that we definitely recommend that people get uh, screened. I think for generally healthy asymptomatic people, you know, annual is probably fine. Um, sometimes people want to check it more often, but I don't have people who are health, you know, healthy and don't have any symptoms check it like you know monthly or weekly or anything like that. That's just unnecessary neurosis over something to continue to search for a problem. More likely to make your blood pressure go up by looking that often than to actually detect a problem. Anything you'd add on blood pressure? I mean, it's hard to take it to get it accurately measured. Uh, you know, that's the biggest quibble I have with the normal way that it's screened, like that, you know, we yeah. screen for hypertension in the office. Yep. Um, so just like things that you can do as a patient to empower yourself and make sure that you're getting accurate data. Uh, make sure you get to the office, you know, preferably 20 to 30 minutes before your appointment. I know I'm asking people to do something that's not going to happen, but that's my recommendation. The idea is you would be sitting quietly for about 20 to 30 minutes prior to getting your blood pressure taken. Um, that's within, that's how you're supposed to measure this stuff. Uh, make sure you advocate for the correct size cuff. If you're a big, uh, jacked person with big biceps, um, you're going to need a bigger cuff. And most of the time the nurses are pretty good about this. Uh, but sometimes, you know, in a hurry, they, not, they might not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you'd want to advocate for yourself there. And then, um, uh, ideally you would, you would have already used the bathroom. You wouldn't be in any significant pain. Effectively, you're just sitting there relaxing. Somebody's taking your blood pressure. Yeah. Uh, and if it's above 120 over 80, that's elevated. So it's not like, well, it's in the 120s still, that's fine. And it, but it also doesn't mean you need to freak out. This isn't one of those things that's like, wow, I am 125 over 83. That is a sudden risk of like, <laughs> you know, yes, death just because of the, my elevate, you know, slightly elevated blood pressure. It just, it's telling you that, hey, something's amiss and we need to make some changes likely to address this. Uh, if it were me, I think you already talk about the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. Uh, I didn't mention that. Yeah, it's just that's one of the things that I've been recommending more uh, regularly for yeah. folks it, when they have some question about whether or not they actually have elevated blood pressure. So again, as of 2017, the cut, the, the kind of cut point for what is normal blood pressure and what is elevated is 120 over 80. Um, if you're in the office and you get your blood pressure measured and it's greater than 120 over 80, if you get it measured twice, um, you effectively receive the diagnosis of having elevated blood pressure. If it's 120 to 130, if it's over 130, you get hi hypertension. Yes. But the point is you'd want to know, is your blood pressure actually elevated or in that hypertensive range on average throughout a day? And so enter ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. So effectively you wear a device that measures your blood pressure throughout a day and you get to kind of like figure out what's your average blood pressure. So, because a lot of times what doctors will do is 
send their patient home and say, yeah, just take your blood pressure at home. Uh, we'll monitor it till your next visit to kind of get a better reading of like what's going on, you know, with your blood pressure because an isolated, you know, one measurement doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. Yeah. Uh, but I think a more accurate way to do this is that ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, if it's available to you. I'd be, I'd, I'd also point out that, you know, having a measurement in that elevated range does not necessarily imply that you need medication uh, treatment right away. The guidelines for this are have kind of been shifting even since we were in school about when you should initi initiate treatment, who you should initiate it for and how to actually determine who merits treatment. And there's, you know, it's more kind of leaning towards uh, at the extremes, you would just treat it based on the number alone. Otherwise, in these kind of like lower ranges, like in the 120s, it's primarily lifestyle stuff that you're going to recommend. Once you get higher than that, we're assessing people's overall cardiovascular risk to kind of guide decision making as far as medications and things like that. Because, you know, the people who stand to benefit the most from treating high blood pressure are people with the highest blood pressure, the people with like really mildly mild elevations, they don't stand to benefit quite as much. And so we want to mitigate the risk of overtreatment, unnecessary overtreatment for people who aren't likely to benefit. So we definitely are not putting all of our patients with like, you know, mildly elevated blood pressures on blood pressure reducing medications, when you know, it, it seems that the risks may outweigh the benefits. So that's everything on blood pressure. Um, the other thing would be uh, a blood lipid screening. This is what people typically think about as a cholesterol panel. Um, the guidelines on this, as far as when it should be checked, have also changed. I think if I recall, uh, you know, the last I was taught about this, I think it was like, you know, at the age of 35 for, for men and it might've been 40 for women or something like that. I don't think that, um, you know, that's fine if you want to wait that long. I don't think that there's likely to be significant harm from checking it earlier than that. And the, and the reason being that, you know, we know that cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death. We know that the highest uh, risk factor for developing cardiovascular disease is blood lipid abnormalities, um, uh, tend to be the biggest driver of this kind of the, 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 the causal driver of this process. And we know that risk of car developing cardiovascular disease is, uh, increases with increasing lifetime exposure to these blood lipid uh, uh, abnormalities. So meaning uh, that uh, the earlier they are elevated and the higher they are, the longer they're elevated for, the higher your risk is over the course of your lifetime. And so I just tell people that they should get get uh, get these uh, get these levels checked. The best parameter off of a standard lipid panel as far as assessing people's cardiovascular risk is to take the total cholesterol, subtract the HDL. So you get a parameter called the non-HDL cholesterol. And the target range in general for what we call primary, you know, people who don't have known cardiovascular disease is for that non-HDL to be below about 130 milligrams per deciliter. For people who have known cardiovascular disease, we try to, we tend to tighten, tighten that uh, target a little bit more because uh, we have very, you know, again, gr enormous bodies of evidence that for the, for, <laughs> for those folks that uh, tightening those, uh, tightening those targets tends to uh, reduce their risk of having more and more and more cardiovascular events like heart attacks and strokes. So that's the basics on blood lipids. Again, this is a situation where mild elevations, sometimes even moderate elevations, um, I will opt to not put somebody on a medication for it. Uh, we tend to use assessments of people's cardiovascular risk to try to decide this, not just the numbers by themselves when they're not in an extreme range. Um, because there are, again, benefits and harms to overdiagnosis, overtreatment, but more so if you're in a mild to moderate, say, elevation, maybe you're, and you don't uh, have other risks that would make you uh, stand to benefit from a medication, then that's a situation where we'd again recommend 
kind of aggressive lifestyle treatments, trying to get waist circumferences down, physical activity levels up, meeting the dietary guidelines we recommended above, including the, the dietary fat uh, and fiber recommendations um, to try to get these uh, uh, levels to better ranges to reduce people's lifelong risk of cardiovascular disease because it's such a common problem uh, in, in the U.S. and in the world. But I thought that leading scientists agree that none of this matters. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm quite, as, as you are probably, I'm quite tired of having this conversation, particularly when we know uh, kind of how large the, the body of evidence is. These two articles that have come out in the past uh, two or three years in the, the European uh, uh, Society Cardiology Journal um, on uh, kind of the causal drivers of this process, they're just enormous, enor like I can't even say, describe how large the bodies of evidence are on this topic, but there are always going to be people who are not interested or who, you know... Um, don't buy into it. And at this point, I'm like, you know, okay, uh, I'll put out my recommendations and try to support them. And uh, if people want to follow them, ideally, that's my bias. If they don't, and they want to follow yours, then, you know, people are uh, autonomous beings and uh, free to make that decision. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, when you when you're looking at evidence on something, you would prefer to see converging lines of evidence across many different study types and study and met, uh, methods, etc. So for this particular relationship between cardiovascular disease and LDL uh, co particle concentration, we have animal models, we have Mendelian randomization studies, basically studying genetic uh, modifications that alters individuals LDL levels. We have randomized controlled trials uh, out the wazoo. We're talking hundreds of studies, millions of patients. I mean, it's just overwhelming. So in my view, if you kind of deny this whole relationship and all and the rest of the sort of current management strategies that we have based off that, it's effectively like you're a flat earther. Which I, so I don't really know, like what, you know, we're we're alienating our flat earther sort of audience here, I guess. But it's like I just don't know what else I can say to you, because we just we're so far off on like how do you science what science is. <laughs> we yeah, just, we just we need to circle the wagons, come back and find some common ground, I guess. Yeah, so. and additionally, people will say people will try to argue and say, well, you know, what you guys are suggesting is like the same old thing, and it's not working because that because cardiovascular disease is still the leading cause of mortality, and it's like, well, while that's true, it 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 actually is decreasing. Like if you look at it actually is working mortality, it has dropped significantly in the past 40, yeah, 50, it's 60 plummeting. Years. So. Yeah, it's going yep. down quite a bit. So uh, I, I would disagree with that not, take. So not because more people are carnivore or keto. So <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> in any case, all right. And then the final sort of uh, routine screening thing that we recommend is around the depression screen, um, which it, it you know it it actually does get done in the office pretty frequently. Yeah. Um, and usually it's uh, a pretty quick sort of assessment unless somebody comes back with a, a positive positive screen. But um, how I guess the the bigger problem is a lot of folks aren't going to see the doctor. A lot of people aren't actually engaging with their medical professionals, so they this might get missed. And this is a very big component. One of these sort of um, I guess underappreciated. Yeah. Uh, 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 you know, factors in disease and, uh, and, and people just aren't getting screened for it. That's, that's a problem. If you have the opportunity, the access to go see a healthcare provider, uh, you know, 
this should be happening. And, and, and most providers are pretty good about doing that, particularly if you're a new patient to the clinic, to the practice. Um, if you don't have access to this, um, there are a number of different screening tools that you can, uh, you can use. And so we've linked one in the article. It's called the PHQ-9. You can do this to yourself. You know, I don't know about the retest, the test retest reliability of self-administering this. So we'd prefer that it was administered by a healthcare professional without you having seen it beforehand. But if you're not going to be able to see a medical professional, this is one way to kind of do some screening here to kind of see if you, you need an additional hand. Yeah. Outside of these things on a broad scale, there's not a whole lot else that we really, I mean, even we don't even have evidence that like people will, this idea of like an annual physical quote unquote, which is like a term that I've always found annoying. Like, you know, you just show up and the doctor like listens to your heart and your lungs. There's like no evidence that that actually has any benefit, uh, uh, with respect to, you know, disease or disease or, or, uh, or death. And so, um, there's a lot of misconceptions about screening. There's this like general public conception that early detection is always better for things, um, which is not necessarily the case for people who are more interested in this topic or want to learn why. Um, just the general topic of overdiagnosis. I recently posted about this, a book that I read uh, by Dr. Gilbert Welch, which is, um, he's an internist, and this was an excellent book on the topic. Would recommend people read it to learn about this because the medical system can can definitely make you sicker by through uh, over testing and over diagnosis and basically searching for things to be wrong. Uh, we generally agree with the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommendations for what should be done for a particular person of a particular demographic. Uh, I know we have a lot of clinicians in the audience. If you're not familiar with the uh, electronic preventive services selector tool from the AHRQ, we will link that for people to go and be like, hey, what should I be screening for in this like 35-year-old male or this like 48-year-old female? You just punch in the demographics and it shows you what has good evidence for screening, what has bad evidence for screening, and what you definitely shouldn't do. Um, because outside of some of these basic things and what we have strong evidence for, we really don't recommend any other routine screening. And this is a huge problem you know, particularly with people of higher socioeconomic status, maybe who have, you know, higher education levels, and they just think that more testing is better, more information is always better. I've heard that quote from patients before, and I kind of cringe when I hear it. And they just want to get more tests. And there are lots of companies that are happy to oblige just getting more and more and more tests. And you get all this data and have like, you know, green light, red light for these various parameters, and they gets you on this path of like, uh, like we've said before, I've had patients who ask me, you know, their mean platelet volume was low and what they can do to improve that. And I'm like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever, this is like the stupidest conversation I've ever had because it's not something that anybody should be concerning themselves with in general, particularly in a screening situation. Um, so screening, just testing people who don't have symptoms for vitamin D. Uh, uh, we don't have evidence that that improves outcomes, screening people who don't have symptoms for testosterone, for thyroid, for cortisol, doing stress tests on asymptomatic people, doing other lab, urine, salivary imaging tests on people who don't have any symptoms or complaints. We really don't have evidence for a lot of these things um, outside of what we mentioned above. And then for certain populations, there are certain recommendations like screening a particular population for, um, you know, hep C infection, uh, which can go without symptoms for a long time, HIV infection, things like that. But there are relatively few and far between. And then outside of these screening things that we mentioned, the only other thing from a, you know, uh, interacting with the healthcare system standpoint is that way, way, way more effective than any of these tests uh, uh, for reducing risk of disease and death is just getting your immunizations. Uh, that has way higher efficacy for reducing risk of disease and death than getting any particular blood test when you have no symptoms. So, uh, Merck is just giving you money now. <laughs> or? Lining the old pockets, right? 
lining the old pockets for that yeah. rotavirus uh, yeah. vaccine. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I do feel for, you know, the public because the mainstream media, you know, every day seems like is reporting, you know, some new health concern or some new hormone, you know, imbalance that could potentially be causing, you know, everything. Yeah. It's like, do you, are you sometimes tired at work after lunch? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do, do you sometimes not sleep well? You're like, I mean, yeah. You know, never mind that these things are very common experiences, you know, across, you know, all populations. Right. Right. And so, and then, and then it's like, you might have low testosterone, yeah, low T, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, all right, well, so now I want to get checked. And then, you know, the clinician, if they're read up on this stuff, would counsel you and say, hey, this is, you know, do you have any of these other actual objective symptoms? You know, that requires a workup. And if you don't, it's like, nah, I don't think that you should be screened for this because it's unlikely to be to help you out. If anything, it might just lead us down this road, this rabbit hole where, you know, you don't want to be and and do a bunch of unnecessary testing, unnecessary, uh, uh, you know, medications and stuff like that. So, I but I feel for the the general public. Yes, yes. Like I said, I wish people. I wish I could like uh, uh, neuralize people and have uh, Doctor Welch's book downloaded into their brains so they can understand what they're getting themselves into when when they start searching for problems where uh, probably none exist. <laughs> Even 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 cancer screening is super super complex. Uh, that whole conversation we don't necessarily need to get into here, but um, overdiagnosis. We have a podcast on it. Yeah, 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 it's a big it's a big issue. Uh, you want the you want that book, the overdiagnosis book, downloaded into their brains. I want. Uh, Do you believe in magic? Yeah, uh, from Doctor <laughs> Paul Offit. Yeah. yeah, downloaded into their brain. All right, getting to close. Got two two items left. Item number six learn about and apply self-management strategies for pain. Well, this doesn't seem like something you actually want because that puts you out of a job, yeah. right? Because <laughs> you just, you, <laughs> you, you're getting, you're getting those big pain checks. Yes. So you're, <laughs> well, my real job is never going to be out of style. People are always going to get sepsis and pneumonia and various other things that drive them to the hospital for treatment. If I were out of a job from a musculoskeletal pain standpoint, that would be awesome because that would mean that the whole world's, uh, you know, disability uh, due to persistent pain states is, would be gone. Um, but um, this is something obviously we talk about a ton. This is where a lot of people tend to find us through this content that we put out on pain. So we don't need to spend a ton of time here, but I will link a few of our uh, uh, bigger or more popular resources in this section. But just knowing that how, how widely prevalent and potentially disabling uh, 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 both acute and persistent pain uh, can be, we think that there is a substantial uh, amount of benefit to be had through uh, education on this such that people can reframe their experiences and continue to uh, you know, engage in meaningful activities and, and learn how to self-manage, increase their self-efficacy on that front, adapt and self-manage to the challenge of uh, dealing with pain, which uh, we're all going to experience at some point. Not me. <laughs> Just not going to have it. Not yeah. anymore. Yes. I, I, it would be, it'd be really actually easier to deal with um, pain and injury and on that whole rehab front if people came in from with a better understanding of what pain is, what it means, what it doesn't sure. mean, totally. et cetera, et cetera. Um, so effectively, we'd be able to get kind of jump right into let's do this, this, and this to address your pain right now and get you right. back to doing the things that you want to be able to do rather than sort of have to go through this rather long, you know, involved process. But happy to do it. Yeah. Um, but I think if we could get people to like 
read read these things and get kind of trained up on on pain that would put us all in a better place and i get agree woke. yeah yeah get like but actually woke <laughs> not like not like the woke person who's you know selling cbd you know, oil uh, for pain ah, jesus christ <laughs> just can't I just can't. Okay. Yep. Number seven, develop and maintain meaningful social connections with others. Now, Austin, for you, this seems a little fluffy. Seems a little squishy. Like yeah. I don't, this is a little too right brain for the Austin Baraki that I know. <laughs> yeah. So what, what's going on, man? This was this, this contribution. Actually, I think this contribution came mainly from Tom, but I definitely agree with it um, because you can look through all the other things that we mentioned. So it's possible to do a bunch of physical activity, be at a healthy body weight, sleep well, not smoke, get your blood pressure screened and learn about pain and still be profoundly isolated and live an, an existence that is, you know, what, not what we would call particularly healthy. Um, you know, cause remember our definition of health, ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of physical, social, emotional challenges. Um, and so it's possible for like, you know, all these things might cover like your biology, might keep you healthy from that standpoint if we're going to like, you know, split these things out. Um, but if you're just like totally isolated with no, you know, social uh, kind of relationships or uh, things that bring meaning to you as an individual, then I would don't know that I would call you particularly healthy uh, in that state. Uh, and so that's kind of where this where this comes in. Uh, it's also just like a lot of the other things that we've talked about, uh, uh, easier said than done particularly for, for some individuals, it may be more challenging depending on their individual situations. But I think that, you know, we have, there's lots of interesting evidence across the world of like, you know, uh, uh, communities that are just like, say, super, super tightly knit, uh, uh, positive kind of social communities, and they tend to have better health outcomes than places that aren't like that. And uh, particularly nowadays, people are tending to get a little more isolated, which is problematic, even outside of their pure biological effects. Yeah, I mean, this is, it, it's a pretty uh, interesting uh, topic yet also very complicated because there are some benefits to isolating yourself at various times where, you know, you were just previously with a big group of people or, you know, there, there's this sort of restorative process that some people need, uh, you know, and, and there's a sort of individual preference for how much, you know, interaction you want with, with other people. And, and interestingly, this isn't really just being around other humans either. You can be uh, like around other people and still be isolated meaning you don't have connections with these folks uh or you could be and it's an isolation is not the same as being lonely they're two different things it's really interesting podcast that came out uh freakonomics i think did a great job on this it's from it was just published uh two That's days weak. ago yeah so if yes so if you're curious about that this is uh, something that i've been like looking into for a while now and it's just uh it's fascinating to me so i agree that we would uh prefer that individuals develop and maintain meaningful relationships. And however they define that is probably something I'd be on board with, you know, like whatever that means to you. In the, in the, in the podcast, they described it as, you know, people basically have a certain desire for a certain amount. And if it's like, if it, yep. that's met. And so like, even, even say between me and you, there's likely a very different degree of that, that, that maybe, maybe desire yes. between people in our, between people in our audience or, between me and my wife and stuff like that, we all have different uh, amounts of, um, you know, need or desire for, for certain amounts of this stuff. So that is the barbell medicines, like overview of what you should do 
uh, to improve your health, what we think are the main important things. We're obviously going to keep coming out with new information, uh, but we wanted a sort of landing page type article for folks who are like brand new to barbell medicine that just wanted our, you know, the nitty gritty uh, in a, in kind of simple, simple uh, terms as far as what we should be doing, what, what sort of uh, uh, actions should be, should be taken rather than, yes, as you said, like a 40-page article with 100 citations about the specific effects of red meat intake on health, yeah. for example. But, yeah. you know, wherever people come into the funnel, that's cool with me. As long as you're here, we're happy to have you. Uh, any closing remarks, Dr. B? Um, I mean, I think that we're going to keep getting all kinds of health-related questions forever. And I would just, you know, remind people that Hey, if you're like, if you're asking a question about something super specific that say is not discussed on this list, um, you know, that's cool. We, we are happy to discuss these things a lot of times or sometimes not so much, but the point is that if let's say that you have several of these factors, uh, on this list that are not addressed in your individual life and you're worrying about, uh, micromanaging some other detail that is not on this list, then our answer is likely that you should probably reshuffle your your priorities to to get the things that are on this list in line before worrying about other things. Now, if you're like, you know, checking seven out of seven of these things and then you're wor- then you're, you know, asking us about say a particular supplement or something else, then yeah, we can have we can definitely have that conversation. So that's kind of the way I hope or I or envision this kind of thing being used is to kind of target people's attention and their effort towards the things that are going to get them kind of the biggest uh, uh, bang for their buck with respect to, to health outcomes. Um, and then we can work our way down from there, depending on the amount of, uh, you know, energy and attention and resources that they want to devote to this thing. Yeah, I agree. Please keep coming up with these interesting questions. We'll be happy to answer them. All right. For Dr. Baraki, I'm Dr. Feigenbaum. You've been listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. We appreciate you being here. If you're over on iTunes or actually wherever you get your podcast from, leave us a five-star rating and a review. Share this with your friends. Let us know what you think, and we'll catch you guys next time. See you.